everyone, I'm Melinda DeSetta and welcome back to Melinda in Miami. Last week, we talked about men in their 20s and 30s overcoming erectile dysfunction. This week, it's all about you and your partner's sexual libido. Every couple experiences sex desire disparity. And what that is, is the gap between how often each person in the partnership wants sex. And this episode is all about how to get you and your partner back on the same page. One is a pelvic floor specialist. She will be talking to you ladies who are experiencing pain during sex and how she works with her patients to overcome this. The second is a couples therapist right here in Miami, and she will be telling you all her tips and tricks on how she works with her couples to narrow the sex disparity gap. Sexual desire disparity creates huge tension in a relationship. If a woman wants more sex than her partner, whether it's a man or a woman, she will begin developing feelings of rejection, sadness, low self-esteem. If a man wants more sex, they can become angry and really frustrated within the relationship. So I want to give you a few ideas how to work through this if you were experiencing this with your partner. One. I'm here to tell you that sex is not all about physicality. Sex is actually between your ears. So depending on what your day looked like, that is going to impact your libido. If you're feeling stressed from work, taking care of the house, if there's children around, you may have a lower sex drive. And your partner may have experienced a different day. So right there, we're seeing different libidos coming to the end of the night. Also, people require different stimuli to get in the mood. Some people get really excited with spontaneity. Some people get in the mood just when things pop out of the blue or there's a trigger that comes up. Some people need more nurturing. Some people become turned on once they're already being stimulated. So that means the atmosphere needs to be right or their partner needs to help them or they need to identify ways to turn themselves on. But I'm here to tell you that the sexual desire disparity is something that so many couples go through and it really can lead a lot of couples to break up if they don't get the right help. Sometimes sex can become the elephant in the room and the monster that we don't want to feed anymore. One tip I give to couples is to remove sex completely. Take a month off from having sex and develop connection and intimacy in different ways. Think communication, think touching, think playfulness, think maybe building intimacy through massages. But removing this pressure of having sex can actually bring the couple closer and help you work through this large sexual desire disparity. One thing that can create a large sexual disparity gap is when women experience pain during sex. Now, women, if you are experiencing pain during sex, Dr. Friedman, my next guest, is going to tell you the services that are available to you and some of the techniques she uses to help women gain back their strength and enjoy their sex life. 
Dr. Rivka Freeman is a physical therapist who helps women suffering from pelvic floor pain and many other challenges women have with their pelvic floor. She is a physical therapist at a premier gynecological medical center, Florida Center for Urogynecology here in Hollywood, Florida. She has 12 years experience as a physical therapist and 10 years experience with the pelvic floor. So thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Freeman. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm really excited to have you here on the show today because I wanted to talk about women, women who are experiencing pain in their pelvic floor. That has to be a big driver for women not wanting to have sex. Absolutely. Can you tell us what a pelvic floor specialist does? Yes. Well, I'm a physical therapist and I specialize in pelvic floor physical therapy. So maybe it would help to first explain what the pelvic floor is. So the floor muscles are a group of muscles in the perineum or the bottom. And they, they range from the, it's a whole group of muscles and it spans from the pubic bone in the front all the way to the tailbone in the back. Uh, These muscles are responsible for bladder, bowel, and sexual function. So namely what they do is they close the openings. Uh, They are responsible for keeping us continence. Um, They effectively close the, when they contract, they close the urethra, the vagina, and the anus. They are also a support system for our organs inside the pelvic cavity. So they help to support the bladder, the uterus, and the rectum. These muscles are also part of our core. So when we think about the core, we normally think about the abdominal muscles, but that's not the whole core. The whole core includes the respiratory diaphragm on top, the pelvic floor muscles on the bottom, the deep abdominal muscles or the transversus abdominis muscle more specifically in the front, and some of the deeper muscles, the spinal muscles in the back. And the core is often compared to a canister or a soda can. So when you think of the core, don't just think about your abs but you want to think about that whole canister that gives us support in our day-to-day function. So these muscles are really, really important. So I deal more specifically with bladder, bowel, and sexual function, and as well as pelvic pain. Um, so, you know, let's say a woman comes into my office for, you know, the purposes of this talk, let's talk about, you know, painful sex. So a woman will come into my office and I will do a detailed history and get as much information as I can. And then I will do, usually do a two-part exam. So the first part of my exam will be an orthopedic screen or, um, an orthopedic assessment just looking at you know the musculoskeletal system, not necessarily the pelvic floor, but I'm looking at alignment, posture, mobility, flexibility, anything externally or orthopedically that could be contributing to pelvic floor muscle function. And then I will do a pelvic floor exam, which is similar to a gynecologic exam, where I insert a gloved finger into the vagina and I check the ability for the woman to either contract and or relax those muscles. And based on that information, I design a program. Wow. So what would a program look like? For, so someone's coming in and they're saying to you, you know, I'm really having pain during sex in, and I don't know why I'm experiencing this soreness. You would be able to develop a program for them to do at home or is this something they would come to your office for? So it's both. So, you know, you know, the, the evaluation is super important because that gives us, you know, 
a lot of insight into what's causing the pain. So then we address the pain specifically, um, you know, we address the treatment towards what the dysfunction is. So, you know, there's various types of causes for sexual pain. So um, just to go into them briefly, you know, one of the main causes is a condition called vaginismus. Vaginismus is where these pelvic floor muscles contract involuntarily in response to attempted penetration. So these women might not might have difficulty inserting a finger, a tampon, as well as a GYN exam and, and have difficulty with sex. And this condition comes in varying levels. So some, some women can't insert anything. Some women just have pain with sex. When I first came into the field, that was really the first time I was hearing about this pain, like this disorder. And I have to imagine that it's something that you see on a regular basis, but I don't think is talked about in society as much as it should be. Right, right. Absolutely. So, um, so to get back to where I was starting, I think I wanted to give you a few examples of causes of pelvic pain so or pain with sex. So vaginismus is just one example of a reason why a woman, woman might be having pain with sex. Another reason why a woman might be having pain with sex is um, vestibulitis or vestibulodynia or vulvodynia. And this is pain, just generalized pain in the vaginal area. There's many different groups and subsets of this pain condition, but basically it's not necessarily a muscular issue in of itself, but it can trigger pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. So let's say a woman, for whatever reason, um, is having pain at the vaginal opening. That will trigger what we call a pain spasm pain cycle. And the woman will then start to tense up her muscles in anticipation or, you know, as a protective response. And that actually um, creates more tissue dysfunction and creates more pain. So it's a vicious cycle. So my role as a physical therapist is to teach the woman how to relax those muscles in a nutshell. Um, so um, there are other causes, of course, you know, uh, there's postmenopausal vaginal atrophy where the tissue, um, you know, becomes um, what we call deestrogenized or lack of blood flow to the tissue. Um, so it makes that tissue kind of raw and irritated. Um, another cause might be scar tissue in the area. So there's lots of different reasons why a woman might be having pain with sex. And that's why it's so important to have a good assessment of the pelvic floor area to really determine what is causing the pain so that we can give, prescribe the right treatment for the patient. Right, exactly. Wow. And so when do you typically see um, postmenopausal women coming in? Like what age range are you seeing that? So, you know, basically it's any time after a woman goes through menopause. So around, it could be around the time it starts, or it might take a few years for the tissue changes to occur. So it's really any time after menopause. So some women say it's like as soon as they hit menopause, they started having it. Others, it's years later. So it really varies. Okay. So independent basis. Wow. Tell me, so I get a lot of questions, be, being a sex therapist, um, I get a lot of questions around these Kegel weights that we're seeing on Amazon. And when I was looking at the reviews, it says on the advertising that it's doctor recommended. Can you tell me what your opinion is? So I don't, I personally don't recommend them very much in my own practice, but I know a lot of therapists do. Um, so if a woman is having pain 
anything with sex, I would absolutely not use vaginal weights because that is actually the opposite of what they should be doing. So that sort of segues into different types of pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. So there are two main types of pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. Uh, you have what we have called an overactive pelvic floor or an underactive pelvic floor. So an overactive pelvic floor is when the muscles are tight or spasmed. And it's my job as a therapist to teach the patient how to relax those muscles. So you can imagine, um, you know, inserting a weight is designed more for strengthening. So you can imagine how that is actually the opposite of what a woman should be doing when they're having pelvic pain or pain with sex. Um, patients that have an underactive pelvic floor, um, those women need to work on strengthening and weights may or may not be appropriate. So if a woman is having a lot of symptoms related to an underactive pelvic floor, maybe they have urinary incontinence or leakage, fecal incontinence or leakage, um, urinary urgency and frequency, um, pelvic organ prolapse, um, heaviness and pressure in the vaginal area. Um, you know, those are all signs and symptoms of a weak pelvic floor. But if their muscles are very, very weak, um, then the weight's not really appropriate either, unless it's really done in a very specific way guided by a therapist. So, um, you know, you have to have a certain amount of strength to begin with to use a, a vaginal weight. Where a vaginal weight might be a good idea is if a woman has no symptoms whatsoever, she has a normal healthy pelvic floor, or maybe she just can sense that she's a little weak, but she doesn't really have symptoms, um, then that might be a useful tool, you know, to get started on strengthening. Um, I also sometimes use it with women that are, you know, more into um, high-level fitness, um, you know, that we want to take them to the next level of their therapy. So maybe they'll use a weight when they're on the treadmill or something like that. But that's really not in the early phases of therapy when the patient is just getting to know how to use their pelvic floor properly. So the reasons you would ever recommend it are completely different than what the packaging is really saying about women learn how to tighten your vagina, feel better during sex. It really seems like these are not the best reasons women should be running out to buying. these. Right. So, so just to clarify, you know, if, if the woman is having pain with sex, absolutely not. She should not be doing it. Um, if she's just, you know, maybe has a poor sensation or feels loose down there, then it might be a good idea to try it. Ah, okay. Well, thank you. Is there anything else that women out there um, should know that these services are available? Like I said, when I started my PhD program, this was the first time I was really hearing about your field. And so it was very new. And when I talked to my colleagues, it's the same for, for them. And we're in the field. We should have known about this. So is there anything else that women out there should know of the services that you provide that are very commonly um, come to you for? Yeah. So, um, so specifically, you know, you know, with regards to, you know, painful sex, what should a woman do if she's having painful sex? So I would first recommend that the woman see her primary OBGYN just to rule out the obvious like infections or any other, you know, structural issues that might be there. But let's say she goes to her, you know, gynecologist and she's not getting the answer she's looking for. I would say that she should seek out a professional that is specifically trained in pelvic pain and sexual dysfunction. Like a medical, like I happen to work in a wonderful facility um, alongside uh, expert doctors um, so that specialize in pelvic pain and sexual dysfunction. So I would say they should seek out a doctor like that. Um, one way they can find a doctor that specializes in pelvic pain is by uh, looking up the um, International Pelvic Pain Society online. So that's pelvicpain.org. Um, but if she can't find a doctor in the area, um, a physical therapist that, like myself, that is very well trained in pelvic pain and sexual dysfunction, 
prescription can also give a really pretty accurate diagnosis as to what's going on most of the time and gets treatment started. So a good way to find a pelvic floor therapist is pelvicrehab.com. There's other websites, but that's just the easiest one to recommend because it's easy to remember. So that's pelvicrehab.com. Both of these websites have um, provider directories that you can look up, look for providers using your zip code. Um, so, however, I do understand that, you know, due to financial constraints and time constraints, you know, maybe you might not be ready to see a provider right away. So there are some books out there that you might want to start reading. There's um, Heal Pelvic Pain by Amy Stein and Ending Female Pain by Issa Herrera. Those are also um, pelvic floor physical therapists like myself that wrote these books. It's chock full of exercises and things that you can try on your own to get started on your healing journey. Wow, ladies, so these resources are out there for you. And what about during the pandemic? Is there any way that they can do a Zoom call to you or an over-the-phone consultation? Yes, absolutely. So we're offering telehealth now, um, telehealth appointments during the COVID-19 pandemic. We are seeing patients live as well, but definitely if a patient's not able to come in, we are offering telehealth visits. That, that's amazing. All right, ladies, and you can find Dr. Friedman's information in the bio. There will be a link to her website. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Friedman. Thank you so much for having me. Always fascinating having Dr. Friedman on the show. I hope you found her information useful. Next up, we have licensed psychotherapist Genesis Games, who is going to be talking to you about how she works with her couples when one person in the relationship wants more sex than the other. Genesis Games is a bilingual English and Spanish mental health advocate and psychotherapist in Miami, Florida. She's a licensed mental health counselor in the state of Florida and Gottman trained couples therapist. Her specialties include relationships, breakups, separations, divorce, and life's transitions. Genesis is passionate about helping people improve their relationships with themselves and others. She, firm, she firmly believes that we are only as healthy as our relationships. And you can follow her on her Instagram. Her handle is at the Miami Therapist. So thank you so much for being here today, Genesis. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm really excited to have you on the show today because we've been talking all about this large sex desire disparity. So I'm really excited to hear how you work with couples where one partner is desiring more sex than the other. This is definitely something that is very common among um, couples. And I think that in recent years, we're talking more about it. Not that it's a new problem, um, but definitely an issue that maybe was more taboo. People did not feel comfortable talking about and are finally beginning to discuss this among friends, but also among medical professionals and other right. health professionals. Yeah, it's definitely something that was not as talked about before. So I'm really happy that you're here telling people that this is what you should be bringing up with your therapist if these are some of the challenges you're having. Absolutely. Um, definitely something that should be coming up with your health professional, with your therapist. If you're seeing a couple's therapist, definitely the right place to bring this up as well. Um, and I think a lot of times people might think, well, it's, it's a medical reason where if they're going to the doctor, they're getting a clean bill of health. They may be confused as to like, why am I experiencing low libido? If my hormones are fine, if I'm perfectly healthy, if there's no medication that might be, you know, affecting my libido, then like, what is it? 
And there's definitely medical reasons like the ones that I just mentioned and probably some other ones as well. But there's also some mental health, emotional reasons that might be getting in the way um, of your libido might be harming it. And one of it is stress. And, you know, I, I hate when I hear from people, like when I go to the doctor and I'm like, I'm feeling this and they're like, oh, well, you're just stressed. It, it's kind of annoying to hear that. Um, but honestly, stress does have an impact in our body. And part of the impact that it has in our body is with our sex drive. Um, also anxiety, depression, or any other mental health disorder that we might be experiencing can definitely contribute to um, our libido. I think, you know, for a lot of people living in somewhat of quarantine right now, um, there's definitely has been a lot of changes, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of added stress, some grief. And a lot of people are saying, well, you know, like I have all this extra time with my partner. How come I don't want to take advantage of this time and yes. have more sex? <laughs> like we're basically together all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, you might, you might think, well, if we're together all the time, it would only be natural, but there's all of these other things that are going on for you emotionally as well. And they definitely play a role. Right. And that's one of the, the, one of the main reasons I hear in my practice is, you know, we're not having enough, we're not having as much sex as we would like because we don't have the time. Well, now we're in quarantine. We have a lot more time, but yet we're seeing these sex issues still in our life. Right. And so if you're struggling with depression or you're maybe grieving, you might have all the time in the world, but you're not in the emotional space necessarily to have sex. And so that that's okay. I mean, we want to work on that because eventually we, we want to overcome whatever's going on for us mental health wise. And we definitely want to take some responsibility for the sexual aspect of our relationship, but it's also okay. We're not aliens because we're experiencing that. Um, body image and self-esteem issues are really big, special with especially with women, also comes up with men, but especially with women, if we're not feeling comfortable in our bodies, whether it's because we've gained weight, we've maybe after having a baby, um, this is all going to contribute um, also to how sexy we feel, how attractive we feel. If we're not feeling attractive, it's hard to feel in the mood. Um, previous, um, Previous sexual experiences that haven't been pleasurable, that have been negative, um, can also kind of scare us or kind of make us hesitate around sex. And I think a lot of times there's some anxiety when there's low libido, not always, but sometimes there's some anxiety, whether it's performance anxiety. For men, it may be, am I going to get an erection? Am I going to be able to hold an erection? For women, maybe, am I going to orgasm? Am I going to get wet? Like, how long is it going to take me? So sometimes there's some deep-rooted anxiety based on previous negative sexual experiences. Not necessarily traumatic, but just negative sexual experiences. Right. That performance anxiety really, really drives us actually away from sex, which is maybe surprising to what a lot of people would think. So when you see a couple, one person wanting sex more than the other, what emotions are you seeing down there in Miami that people are having towards each other in the relationship? Because I can imagine this is now stepping outside the bedroom and people are having how they feel about it. So what are you typically seeing the emotions that are going back and forth between the couple? There tends to be this division that creates over time. So if we're saying no more times than yes, um, there's this division that begins to happen. And like you said, that division doesn't stay in the bedroom. It then translates to other issues or other situations that as a couple we have to figure out or we have to kind of decide about. Um, So 
often the person that's being rejected um, feels like they're less than, feels like they're not attractive enough, that their partner is not as in love with them anymore, that maybe the relationship has gone from romantic to some sort of like friendship. Um, they feel rejected. And so this definitely takes a toll on their self-esteem and their own worth as a person. The, the partner that has a low libido feels a sense of responsibility, right? Like it's my obligation to satisfy my partner. My partner has his needs and I don't feel like I can satisfy their needs. Therefore, I'm a bad partner. So in a way, they're both feeling the same. They're feeling disconnected and they're feeling like they can't meet the other person's need. And there's definitely a disconnection going on. And again, when we step outside the bedroom, then this disconnection gets reinforced in other contexts, which doesn't make the situation better. Um, but usually um, what we see as a partner that is not wanting to have sex, a partner that has a low libido, will probably feel like the sense of pressure, the sense of anxiety, the sense of like, I'm not good enough, I can't satisfy your need, they're going to maybe go look for it somewhere else, this is such a shore, so there's this like, kind of lack of willingness, like they almost get over it, it's so stressful to think about sex, it feels such like an obligation that I don't even want to work around this. Exactly, and sex can oftentimes be the first signal or the first flag that something else is going on under underneath. Have you ever been in session with a couple and said, okay, we're having a lot of problems around sex. So what we're going to do for the next month is remove sex from your life. Have you ever recommended that to a couple? So I've never had a situation where we've recommended that. Um, I think that sometimes when couples come, um, they're not always, but when they're struggling with sex and sex is one of the big struggles in the relationship, they're probably at a part where they're not having sex often anyways. Right. So we, we're having these hard feelings, but not because we're having it and we're not liking it because we're just not having it. And a lot of the times it's something that, again, we're not even talking about anymore. It's almost like we've accepted that this is like our fate. Right. And then we put it as this big white elephant in the room. Exactly. Exactly. So I think it's definitely normalizing that these disparities definitely exist. I think it's very hard to find two people in the planet that have the same exact level of sex drive all the time. That's really difficult to find. Now, there's some disparities that are bigger than others for many different reasons, uh, but it's definitely a very normal experience that a couple may go through at different stages of their relationship. Um, so I think normalizing that is very important. And then talking about what sex means for us. I think we all have stories around sex and we all give sex a different meaning. And sometimes there might be a mismatch in those meanings. So being able to understand what sex means for me and then being able to listen to what sex means for my partner. I think for some people, they see connection through sex. Like that's the way that they feel connected to their partner. And for some other people, they need to feel connected before they're ready to have sex. And both are valid. There's, there's not a right or wrong one, but just understanding where you and your partner fall is very important to really understand the dynamic, what's going on beneath the surface. Now, it's a really good point of when the connection is for each person. So if someone is feeling the emotional connection through sex, you know, they're probably going to want sex at different times then. You know, maybe when yes. they're feeling a lack of disconnection. And then for people who 
enjoy the act. They love being intimate with their partner, but that's not how they get their emotional need met. I can see how then you'd find a discrepancy of when you're going to have sex. And maybe, you know, if you have sex after a fight or if you don't, one may want it after a fight. One may be like, no, 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 I don't want to be touched yet. Let's just talk or let's just um, be playful. Yeah, so very important in understanding that. I think if, if we were able to understand the meaning that sex has for us and how we connect, how we get that emotional need met, there would be a lot of misunderstandings that would just go out of the window. Um, John Gottman, who's known for amazing research in the field of couples therapy, has this uh, phrase, I'm kind of paraphrasing his phrase, but basically he says that everything positive that happens in a relationship is foreplay. So sometimes, again, the focus <laughs> becomes, yeah, the focus becomes on the actual sexual act. And so again, a lot of performance anxiety, a lot of anxiety about initiating, being rejected, how am I going to reject the person? So much focus around that. But if we began to focus on other things that happen outside of the bedroom that we can change, that would help us feel more connected to our partner, that could probably help our libido, especially if what's going on is not medical. It's more of the relationship, stress, um, mental health wise. If for example, we are more appreciative of our partner. We're more, we give more compliments about their looks, about their physical appearance, about what they're doing, what they're doing at work, whatever it is, we're giving more appreciation. If we're leaving like little love notes or sending, you know, cute text, flirty text messages in the middle of the day, um, maybe if we're trying to make their life easier by taking something off their plate, something stressful that we know we can probably help them with and that would be significant for them. All of these things are helpful and they're non-sexual, but they do help us feel connected. And so for someone who needs to feel connected to then be in the mood to have sex, this is going to make all of the difference. You know, I really love how you just brought up this anxiety about initiating because there is a lot of anxiety and pressure in initiating. And then when your partner is like, no, nah, I'm not really in mood right now, that can feel huge on the inside, especially if the couple doesn't talk about it. So the whole act just kind of passes and then one's feeling really rejected and the other's just like not really in the mood. And then we just get stuck there. And now as an initiator, the next time they're going to have even more anxiety initiating it or, or maybe anger or persistiveness. I'm not, I'm not, really not sure. exactly, exactly. And then we really yeah. get stuck and, you know, um, working with couples who have sexual issues. I see a lot of people who come to me and they're not having sex. So you don't need to wait to see a therapist when you are having sex come to the sex therapist when you're not having sex and make sure you you bring it up you know whether you specialize in sex therapy or, or you don't it's definitely something that's very relevant to the way we practice absolutely and i what you said i think is really important um i think there can be a lot of anxiety around initiating sex um and i think a lot of times people feel like i really have to be in the mood to initiate sex or i have to be as in the mood as my partner is when they initiate sex right um and that's not the case sometimes by just being willing to engage in it we get in the mood right we don't have to be in the mood before all the time and so i i like to always kind of talk to couples about the idea of saying yes more than we say no and kind of having that willingness we don't have to be in the mood in the moment we say yes but we can be receptive and we can be kind and willing to allow ourselves to get there and so 
and then this is another point that's important of communication, even first of all, self-reflection, and then being able to communicate that insight to a partner, what helps me be in the mode? And that's not just what we do in bed, that's definitely part of it, um, but there's other things that make us feel be in the mood. Like I said before, if I feel attractive, it's more likely that I'm gonna feel in the mood. So if there's certain things that I can do to feel more attractive, certain lingerie that I can wear, certain clothes that I can wear during the day, certain way that I style my hair, whatever the case may be, then be more proactive of doing these things that are going to help me be in the mood. Maybe I feel more attractive and more sexy. Like after I go out dancing, we can't really go out dancing these days, but you can do it like outside in your porch or something and decorate it. Um, but maybe that's something that makes me feel in the mood. So making sure that I'm doing the things in and out of the bedroom that help me, that turn me on. I also need to be aware of the things that turn me off. And then again, communicate these two to my partner. Like these are things that I don't like in and out of the bedroom, they just turn me off. Like I can be in the mood and when this happens or when you say this or when you touch me this way, it just kind of goes away for me. But then these are also the things that I like. I think that we need to become more responsible for our own pleasure and not always put that responsibility 100% in our partner. Genesis, you said such amazing tips, and I love how you're ending with this idea of our sexuality is in our control. So we are able to turn ourselves on. We cannot always count on our partner to do that for us. So really going into ourselves and asking what turns me on and what do I need to do so that I feel sexy for myself, whether I'm in a relationship or not, how much I can just feel sexy being in my own body. So yeah. Thank you. You have such amazing tips. I hope you listeners out there, if you are experiencing this discrepancy in your relationship, you can always reach out to Genesis or you can follow her tips. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Thank you. And now it's time for Melinda's mailbag. Today, all the questions are revolving around the idea of one partner wanting more sex than the other. So Sean, what is our first question for today? All right, the first person wrote in and said, I try to initiate sex with my partner, but many times she's not in the mood. How do I turn my partner on? Hmm. So this is a really common challenge in everything that my podcast really revolved around. So my question back to you, viewer, is what are you doing to turn your partner on? Also, what does your partner do to turn you on? So a lot of times couples don't talk about what the other one likes to get turned on. So my advice to both of you, both of you in the couple would be asking yourself what turns me on when and what turns me off. Hmm. So we really want to know what our partner likes and what our partner definitely doesn't like. So, so looking in at ourselves and then bringing that up with our partner is probably a great segue to learning what they want as well. Yes, because we can't read each other's minds. No, we can't. <laughs> and what's our second question for today? All right. So the second question is kind of from the girl's perspective. She said, I really have a low sex drive in general. How do I increase my sex drive? Hmm. So you're thinking that's from a female's perspective, huh? I'm saying it's from <laughs> the opposite, maybe the other side of question one. So maybe not necessarily gender, but the first one did come from a guy. 
Interesting. The male yeah. on the show is assuming I that did, the woman has a lower sex drive. I did. Well, either way, whether you're male or female out there, my advice to you is your sex drive is a major flag about something going on in your life. So is there something else going on in your world? Are you experiencing maybe more anxiety, stress at work, depression, quarantine, loneliness? All these things can really lower hmm. your sex drive. So the thing I'm going to tell you is make yourself a little masturbation date. Huh. Okay. <laughs> so is that is, will that help then get them in the mood with their partner? It can. Oh, okay. But learning to be in the mood even with yourself. And now when you go through this, right, you're probably not very turned on. You may feel like this masturbation is more of a forced thing. So think about it more as a pleasure journey. Your oh. pleasure journey. I like that. <laughs> this is not about getting an orgasm. Okay. This is about just having a little time with yourself, learning your body, learning what you like. Um, and then if you'd like, and if, if you're going to be intimate with somebody, sharing with them some of the things that you like or letting them, you know, explore in their way too. Neat. Mm-hmm. So do you still think it's from a female's perspective, Sean? I'm going to say it could be from anybody's perspective. I'm sure that this uh, happens to everybody. Yes. Does this happen to you or your friends as well? Not necessarily me at my age right now. <laughs> I think I have the opposite problem. I could probably do with a little less uh, sex drive. I could probably concentrate on more things like my career. <laughs> so there you hear from Shani Mick. Too much of a sex drive. <laughs> All right, and Shani Mick, the sidekick, what is question number three? My sex drive increases after we fight. Why am I so horny after a fight? Mm. Oh, this is not a good thing to tell our viewers. <laughs> might be picking some fights after this. Oh, they might be. So, Sean, have you ever been turned on after a fight? Or your friends? Or your friends? <laughs> or my friends. We'll leave it, we'll leave it at that. Um, I, there's definitely been some romance after a tiffle. I think it's the level of tiffle, though, right? It can't be too much. It's got to be like kind of a, a softer, uh, a softer argument, if you will. Ooh, okay. Not a in the doghouse argument. Okay, so the medium argument. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of people get turned on after a fight, and after a fight, we have a lot of what we call happy hormones during the repair period. So we have these happy hormones floating around our brain, increasing our level of horniness. But also what you're wanting is you're wanting to recreate that connection with your partner. A lot of people associate sex with connection. And I want mm, to help people okay. bring in other things, right? So you're kind of seeming like you're relating to that. I see that. So you're, that's their, their way of uh, mending, mending the argument. Feeling connected. Feeling some people gain love okay. from having sex. But my tip to you is that can be, yes, of course, one way. But make sure that in your relationship you have other ways that bring in feelings of connection. That we seems healthy. <laughs> so my tip to you would be if you are somebody who is having sex for feelings of connection, feeling loved, feeling whole, bring in intimacy through communication, through play, through playful touch. Can you think of anything else that would... Increase intimacy communication? I'm going to leave it up to the expert on this one. Ah, okay. <laughs> so something for Sean to think about yeah. what? Maybe I'll come back next week and bring my opinion in. I would be very excited. There we go. It's very unique to everyone in the audience. 
So thank you so much for being on the show course, today. Shawnee Mick, the sidekick here. Thanks for having me. Always a good pleasure. Thank you. And next week on the show, we will be talking all about why foreplay is important. So stay tuned for Melinda in Miami next week at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Until next time, I'm Melinda DeSetta. Now go have great sex.